Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is the awesome Louise Kissack, founder of Spaghetti Group and the Liverpool Food Network. Coming up on today's show... Louise talks about the bin fairy. Well, I mean, I must have a bin fairy. I've just never seen him. Maybe my bin fairy comes in the middle of the night. I don't know. Phil reveals he may not be over lockdown one. I missed the gap the last time and ended up with this ridiculous mop of hair. And Louise deals in hard narcotics. Back to check in to explain why the x-ray had shown 20 kilos of white powder in foil packages inside of the suitcase that we just checked All that and so much more as Louise talks us through her story and journey to date, as well as some excellent content around how design can help the customer experience and the joy of creating local networks. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week telling the amazing and always amusing stories from hospitality. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share across your favourite social networks. It really does make a wonderful difference. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today we had, uh, well, sorry, we had, we head to one of my favourite parts of the world, which is Liverpool. And I've, I have to say, we're having a, a, a natter with one of the city's finest. Founder of Spaghetti Group, a food and hospitality consultancy helping independent food and hospitality businesses grow and kind of do whatever they need to do to, to move forward. Also, I believe, facilitator at the breadandbutter.co and the founder of the Liverpool Food Network, Welcome to the show, the incredibly busy Louise Kissack. Hello. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Yes, very good indeed. Good. You're, uh, you are a busy woman, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> I like to get involved. I think, uh, I think you know, there's quite a lot on there, but uh, I'll, I'll perhaps try and elaborate on some of that as we go along. But yeah, yeah. I like to, like to get involved in what's going on in my city. Yeah, well, no, that's that's cool, and obviously, you and I got to know each other through those two nutters over at uh, EXP One Hundred One. <laughs> yeah. um, you only have to say nutters, and I know who you're talking about with those. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the great thing about that is is that that to me highlights that you know the kind of the old school rules of of networking still exist. Yeah, because otherwise, how would you and I have kind of crossed paths? You know, it's you know, it's, it's a funny really story as well with the XP because I just started Spaghetti Group. And I didn't know Kieran and Chris, but I saw a post on LinkedIn about an event they were doing in London. And at the time, I just started the business. I had no clients. I had no cash in the bank. And just something in my head said to me, you've got to go to this. You've got to get a train ticket. You've got to go to London. You've got to, you know, get a ticket for this event and you have to be there. And, And I went having, you know, no business, no clients to speak of. Yeah. And... That first event that they did in London was just, it was fantastic. And the amount of contacts who I still have from that event and still speak to regularly, Brilliant. it was just just a gut feel. You know, when you just see a post on LinkedIn that you, you're not even supposed to see, really. You know, it wouldn't normally be in your feed and you think, yeah, yeah let's do it. Well, and that then, sounds yeah. like the fickle finger of fate. Right does there. indeed. <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah, I got... It was Chris that I got to know first. Yeah. Through the podcast, actually, he was a, a recommendation from a previous guest, Liam Wood. Okay. Uh, who they used to work together at Carluccio's. And uh, hopefully Chris would say the same, but we kind of just, we clicked. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. And I just love what they're doing. It's just good fun, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, everything that we've we've worked on together you know, last year, and uh, it's just been 
great fun. It's not one of those Zoom calls that you dread where you think, oh, what's this going to be about? You really look forward to interacting with yeah, them. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't know what uh, hairbrained ideas are currently being concocted. Oh, it'll be something crazy. Look forward to it. I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> anyway, I'm not, this is not our, our EXP 101 loving. Um, this <laughs> is about you. <laughs> So um, maybe you could take us all the way back to, to the beginning. How did you get into hospitality in the first place? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I was hoping that would be the case. My background is actually uh, in construction. I am a, a wow. builder, construction manager, right. uh, a member still of the Chartered Institute of Builders. Um, so not the first person you'd think of getting involved in hospitality. Yeah. Um, I did do, you know, hospitality work when I was in uni. I worked in a couple of bars and restaurants and, you know, just kind of did the waiting on shifts. And yeah. it was, you know, still to this day, one of the best jobs I've had. I really loved being behind a bar, interacting with people. You never know who's going to come through the door. You never know what conversation you're going to have with somebody, whether they've had a good day, a bad day. You know, it's just, it's that sort of piece of getting to know people and hearing their stories that yeah I really loved the jobs that I had while I was in uni Mm. but you know you get a degree and you think oh I should probably get a proper job I should probably go out and do this thing I've trained for three years to learn how to do so yeah I um I got a job about 20 years ago working for a construction and fit out company in Liverpool and at the time their clients were predominantly retailers so I actually took a job as a site manager and I was working on uh, fit outs and refurbishment projects for Tesco's, Matalan, Dunelm. Um, So, you know, going into stores overnight or during closure periods at weekends and moving things around. And because I was the site manager and leading the projects actually on site, I got quite involved with the retail teams as well. So I'd get involved with the sort of store planners or the visual merchandisers. Mm. And yeah, developed a bit of a love for retail, actually, really sort of started to understand a lot of things like the psychology behind where things went in supermarkets, I found really interesting, you know, why are these products close to those products? And why can't we move the bread next to the butter? And, you know, all of these sort of pieces that come together. Right. Um, So, you know, the construction was was the job that I did, but I took every opportunity that I could to sit down with these guys who you know, had very different skill sets and just really try and understand the business they worked in as well. I suppose that that leads into what you're doing as well, right? I mean, yeah, you, you can yeah. then give better advice and design better things, I suppose, if if you understand what the, the end user is going to be using, uh, it, how they're going to use it. It's a bit of an ongoing theme in my life, but I've always been far more interested in what other people are doing. Right. Um, <laughs> so I've had these construction jobs and I've been competent and I've been good at what I did, but I've been really fascinated by other departments in the business. Yeah. That I think, actually, if I could do it all again, would I head in that direction or would I go and do this? And, you know, you sort of, you, you get to the stage where you're looking at other people and, and questioning what they're doing and thinking, that's really interesting. I really, you know, I really like to know more about that. So you basically went into board meetings and, and they'd say, OK, so Louise, what have you got for us? And and you would say, oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Tell me about X, Y, Z. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah. that, that came about a bit later. But yeah, I went from from doing the construction job to um, to McDonald's, actually. And I went into McDonald's as an in-house construction manager. Right. That was about 15 years ago, and it was just around the time McDonald's was starting to refurbish their high street estate. 
just as they were starting to change them from the traditional red and yellow colours to those, you know, dark green shop fronts you were seeing on the high streets. Yeah. So, yeah, it did did nine years in total with McDonald's, but I was really lucky after working in the UK team for a few years to take a position with them based over in France. So um, McDonald's actually have internal teams that manage sort of specific parts of, of the business at a European level, or they used to. I think their structure might have changed now. But at the time, we were the European restaurant development and design team. So we would conceive, you know, ideas or concepts for store design and store interiors that would be rolled out across Europe. And we were responsible for piloting those in each country. We were responsible for finding solutions for things like children's play equipment, um, procuring agreements for furniture that could be delivered at a European level, uh, all sorts of different elements that go into the fit out of a restaurant. And we worked with a fantastic designer down in the south of France. And I think, although I'd worked in construction for, you know, eight years at that point, hadn't had a huge amount of exposure to design and designers. Worked with a lot of architects, a lot of interior designers, but, you know, designers at that creative level who, you know, are are real sort of leaders in what they do. Yeah, uh, and you start to understand. You know, people look at designers and say, oh, "Okay, you know, it's a really expensive thing." Or, "Do I really need an interior designer?" But when they're that good, you can't not have them. You know, they right. they come yeah. up with things that nobody else would imagine, and I think that's you know that's what you pay for. That's the skill set. But this guy was utterly focused on the customer experience. He didn't care about the operation. He didn't care whether it was efficient. He didn't care if it was easy to clean. What would the customer experience be? At the end of that and you know that for me was was when I sort of first I guess started to take an interest in in design but you know the, the sort of customer facing elements I've never really been you know that interested in kitchens and back of house and and, and it's you know I understand the operational logistics of it but you know even when I was building stores the moment I liked best in the whole construction project was when that customer came through the door and you saw the look on their face and that was it for me you know right. I don't yeah. need anybody to tell me I'd done a good job if a customer walked through the door and was like wow and went to interact with different parts of it and I thought yeah we've nailed this yeah do you know what though that that's to be honest is the way it should be yeah, yeah. first and um, foremost right I mean yeah. you know is how do you make people feel when they come into your business and if the answer is amazing then let's build everything out from there. Yeah, yeah let's let's build around that. Um, and that should be the forefront of, of the decision-making process. And it was. Yeah. And, you know, McDonald's are an amazing business to work for. We had, you know, almost unlimited development budgets at that stage. And if there was something that was going to benefit the business in some way, because of the scale of the business, you know, something that would and allow you to get one more car through the drive through in an hour or one more Big Mac over the counter. When you scale that up across a number of stores, you know, suddenly it's, you know, it's very financially viable. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff we worked on was about optimizing, you know, the operational side of things. But what I really loved was particularly developing the new interior concepts. And a lot of that was done on huge amounts of, of market research 
you know, we're going back quite a while here, but we were doing things like putting vision goggles onto customers to really understand exactly what they looked at when they walked into a store. Wow. So did they see the ceiling? Did they see the floor? No. Did they see where the order point was quickly enough? Did they, you know, did they know where to go? We did a lot of research around the pressure point um, at the counter because you think McDonald's, they've changed a lot in the last 10 years, but a lot of that was about the customer standing at the counter and, and they used to have queues in front of each till. And what we found, especially with customers who had families, the moment you got to that till was a huge pressure point in the experience because you had to make decisions. And if you had yeah. two screaming toddlers and a pram with you in a load of shopping and somebody was saying, what do you want, what do you want to order? And a queue of people behind you as well. It was a real sort of tense moment. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I you know, felt the psychology it. behind that of, okay, so how, do we, how do we stop that? How do we let customers do this at their own pace? And, you know, I was in that team when we introduced the first self-order kiosks and table service and all of the things that are now becoming quite commonplace. But they were yeah. all made on the basis that, you know, how do, we, how do we make this experience better for the customer? And I think... You know, it's a side of McDonald's that not a lot of people see. And McDonald's comes in for a lot of stick, which, you know, I still to this day will defend them on anything because their internal process, their sourcing, you know, their, their people policies, they're, they're just incredible. Yeah. I mean, it speaks for itself, right? Yeah. You can't have that long, that kind of longevity without doing something right. Yeah. And they do a lot of things right that they never tell anybody about, which, you know, is that's that's the kind of nice part about it as well yeah but also that i mean there to to even have that kind of tech and play 15 years ago yeah. whereas now it would be kind of ten a penny but yeah. that's that's forward thinking in itself right that you yeah. know how do we utilize the tech out there to help us yeah. understand our business better first time i saw a wireless phone charger was in the mcdonald's office you know, one right. of those pads you take your phone on and it charges and they're everywhere now aren't they you get one when you buy your, your samsung yeah. phone but yeah, first one of those I saw and, you know, and it was, it was so driven by the psychology of customer behavior that I just, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And, and for me, that's, that's still to this day, how I encourage the businesses I work with to make decisions, you know, yes, we need to be conscious of budget and we need to, you know, get the best value for what we're spending. But, you know, you can spend three million pounds on a restaurant. If it doesn't work for the customer, it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. matter how much money you spend, they don't care. They just want that experience that works for them. Yeah, absolutely. Then, yeah, that's, that's something I've held on to. So, yeah, I did did three years over in, in France. Don't speak a word of French, which is, which is embarrassing, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Benefits of working for an American company. I did actually do a qualification to teach English while I was there, though, because I thought, well, if I can't speak all these languages of these countries that I'm dealing with, I may as well try and speak English properly. Yeah. So that was that was didn't work then, did it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know that communication piece, like so, I had countries ranging from God. I had at one point I had Finland, Russia, and Morocco in my remit. So you know, wow. yeah, trying to communicate with people who, in in my day to day work life, pretty much everybody I interacted with spoke English as a second language. Right. And so I thought, well, if I can't learn Finnish and Russian and and you know French or Arabic then how do I communicate more effectively? Because just sending, you know, a volume of emails every day, you become quite aware of the fact you can be very easily misunderstood if the person is not a native English speaker. So, mm. yeah, I did this course just at weekends to 
to learn how to teach English as um, as a as a language. And it, it actually really helped me. It helped me to break down my communication into a way that they could more easily understand. And 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 it became it became so sort of natural to me that I remember going back into the Manchester office one day and answering a phone call from a guy in Sweden. And I just had what I thought was quite a normal conversation with him. Yeah. And the guys from the property team were sat next to me and I got off the phone and they just burst out laughing. I said, what? And they went, you know what you sound like? You sound like when a footballer gets transferred to a European <laughs> country and they give their first press conference and it's in broken English. <laughs> I was like, Oops. not the Steve McLaren effect. <laughs> I thought, well, if I can be understood, I can be understood. You know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to make sense to anybody else. So absolutely. So yeah, that you know that piece of communication and and getting the message across to people has always been quite important to me as well. And then I left France after a couple of years, had a fantastic time flying around Europe and, you know, visiting all these countries and meeting a lot of very nice people and, and just had a great experience. But, you know, that, that takes its toll after a while and came back to the UK and worked on the drive through enhancement projects for McDonald's for a couple of years. So when yep. they were introducing these two lane drive throughs, you yeah, know, that, that was good fun. Uh, and then got two lane drive throughs now. Yeah, I've got loads of them. Have they really? I built about 200. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you can get more cars through that drive-thru lane, you can make a lot more money. So, you know, why not have two lanes? Let's just, let's go for it, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody comes close to McDonald's when when it comes to drive-thru. They're they're so refined in how they do that. It's just Mm. perfect. And that's serving them quite well at the moment. You know, drive-thru has become quite a hot topic. Yeah, Yeah. I've seen really quite small businesses say, right, we're going to focus take all our focus off the high street and really plough it into drive through and, and get ourselves a drive through model off the ground. I think a Brewdog building a drive through over in Australia as well. That wouldn't surprise me, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're, they'll definitely throw their hat into the ring on pretty much anything, wouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, and I mean that positively. I'm not yeah. saying, oh, look at them doing that now. Yeah. drive through alcohol, though, in Australia. I grew up in Australia, and I remember as a kid, that was completely normal. It sounds yeah. so wrong, doesn't it? But... No, I don't. You know, I remember it. Yeah, you would just go and and you you pay, and the guy throws a crate of beer in the back of your car, and then off you go. You know. I don't think they serve alcohol in supermarkets out there, do they? I think it's just uh, these no. these alcohol outlets. Yeah, but they have these warehouse kind of off licenses. I've tried to explain this to somebody, and I've said like they're about the size of a small Tesco supermarket. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they've got five or six tills. And all they sell is alcohol and maybe like three or four packets of nuts or something. But it's purely yeah. beer, wine, spirits, you know, just anything you'd want. And and making that trip to, to one of their sort of off licenses, if you like, is, is the thing you do after you've been to the supermarket. So the beer's still cold when you get home. Yeah, they've given it the focus no. it deserves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered why we don't do that here, particularly the drive-through part. I mean, our weather's terrible, so. Yeah. Do you know the other thing that I I don't understand why we don't adopt in in this country is out out there they don't have one and two cents anymore. It's just yeah. five, and they just they just round it up. Things are still priced at ninety nine and uh, ninety seven and all of that, yeah. but they just if you're close closer to the five than the zero, you get rounded up to the five and vice versa, oh, and it yeah. all just balances itself out. And when I think was the last we would... time you took cash out of a cash machine this year? Well, in the last year. Well, yeah, indeed. Actually, I had to do it for a haircut just before we went into this lockdown. So 
I had to get that haircut in this time before yeah. uh, I missed the gap the last time and ended up with this ridiculous mop of hair. <laughs> but anyway. I don't think I've been to a cash machine since March. Yeah. Last year, March, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, we're, we've, we've, we've really sped up that contactless piece, haven't we? By accident. Can, can you uh, can you hear the bin lorry on at your end through the microphone, by I the way? I cannot hear a bin lorry. Oh, that's fine. It's actually one of the most exciting moments of my day because we've just been catching up after Christmas, which is oh. quite indulgent, and um, and the bin's been getting strained. Oh. And so today is the day that everything gets cleared down and, and we're back to normal. And it just, you know, my life, rock and roll, what can I say? Wow, the bin lorry collection. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, uh... oh, dear me. I don't understand this. I live in an apartment, you see, and we don't, we don't get excited about bin don't there. Don't even know when bin is. To be, it's just big bins, and you put your stuff in them, uh, and they might be Yeah, the bin fairies. Yeah, need one of them. Anyway, we do talk about everything yeah. on this show. So, um, <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we built a lot of drive-throughs at McDonald's, and I was offered a position actually to move to Costa in the UK, and that was actually looking after their international expansion program so within Europe again yeah open Costa in different markets um, they were established in a couple of markets nowhere near as widely as McDonald's were but you know helping the franchisees that they'd appointed for those different territories to you know get get off the ground in a lot of cases get started expand yeah. appoint the right people and I think you know when I talked earlier about being really interested in what other people do that team, because it was such a small team of, of you know, cross functions, that was when I was fascinated by what other people did. So there was myself, a BDM, a marketer, a food development person. Uh, who else did we have? I think there was somebody else in a marketing capacity. Oh, and a trainer. So we'd all go off as a group to say, I don't know, Morocco. We were opening our first stores in Morocco at the time. Yeah. And... I would sit in meetings where, you know, the construction and development part of that was maybe 15 minutes, but we'd sit there for four hours talking about, you know, the the finer points of the ingredients in a particular caramel slice and whether or not we could get them across the border into McDonald's, into um, Morocco, sorry. Mm. And, you know, it was, it to me, it was just so interesting to understand the marketing campaigns, the strategies, the, the food development side of things, the production how to localize that in a territory and it got to the point where you know I'd turn up and do my construction and real estate piece and then that was fine but I'd, I'd just be so interested in what was going on with the other disciplines and to the point where you know I actively took part in things like um, you know, market research trips where we'd go out and we'd you know explore who else was doing coffee and cakes in that particular city and how were they doing it and what was the price point and you know how many were they selling and what was the quality and you know, going to different places and buying 10 different croissants to try and determine which one was good and finding out who their supplier was so we could back on to, you know, it was it was all yeah. of these sort of different ideas. And and it just, it was really exciting. And I think, you know, building any kind of business is exciting. But when you're a small team and there's, you know, there's a franchisee with, you know, their, their own investment and, and you really want them to succeed, I think we were all the same personality we all just wanted to do anything we could to get that to happen mm. and it was it was one of the best teams I've ever worked with again I'm still in touch with most of the people that I worked with during that time 
and and it was just really exciting it's really exciting to take that you know established brand from the UK and take it into a market where there was just no brand awareness at all nobody yeah, yeah. Knew Costa where we took Costa to Spain and people assumed it was a Spanish business because Costa uh-huh, yeah and you think okay you know Costs, um, that would translate into is it? Is yeah, that... it was, yeah, it was like, oh, cost is a Spanish word, so it must be a Spanish brand. And oh, okay, hang on a sec, we've got a bit of work to do here, and all the the trials that come along with that, and and it was just, um, it was just a really interesting period of time. So, following on from that, I um, my, I guess it's my only kind of venture outside of of retail and and hospitality. Well, it's still retail, I guess, but. I went to work for an American company for a couple of years who are the world's largest manufacturer of commercial washing equipment. So these washing machines and dryers that you get in like hotels and cruise ships where they do like 300 kilos of laundry each time. They're like like 10 foot tall and 10 foot wide and you can sit in the drum of them and (laughs) like, you know, airplane engines they're huge yeah and this this company is you know two billion dollar a year turnover absolutely huge and they had a franchise model of you know local laundromats in various countries around the world and they decided that this was one of the areas they wanted to focus on they wanted to build laundromats so you know b2c laundromats so you as an individual go in there with your dirty clothes wash dried ironed whatever you need they come back to you so at that, you know, the point when I entered the business, they'd never had a construction or development person in the business, um, not at an international level. And, and they just sort of gave me completely free reign to design from scratch a concept. Wow. Oh, still, still incredibly proud of it to this day, actually. Somebody once referred to it as the Apple store of laundromats, and I think it's the best compliment <laughs> I've ever had. Nice. But, you know, just sort of, again, my... My starting point from that, the first thing I did was map out the customer journey because I thought, right, this has to work for the customer. You know, if I'm going to take my laundry somewhere, yes, I'm doing it convenience. Yes, I'm doing it to save time. But I have to want to go to the place. And laundromats, notoriously, they're horrible. I spent a lot of time in laundromats in the UK doing research, and they're the most depressing places in the world. Yeah. Well, at least I've got a laundromat on EastEnders. I was going to say, that was my reference point because... I was thinking they should be like community hubs. They should be the place where people go and have a cup of tea and have a bit of a gossip. And, yeah. you know, they were back in the day. That was what, you know, your local local laundromat was. It was it was before everybody had white goods in the home. It was, you know, it was a, a little gathering place. And, yeah. And you know, the hotbed of all the neighbourhoods. <laughs> but now they're just dire. They're grim. And because, you know, a lot of them haven't been been refurbished or touched for a long time. It was quite a depressing experience. And I thought, right, right I need to create the opposite of this. I need to make a place that, you know, is great fun. Yeah. And so my two test markets for that particular business were Mexico and Vietnam. Geographically, couldn't have, of course. <laughs> couldn't have gotten further. I was just about to say, actually, <laughs> I assume that you went to, to Mexico and <laughs> Vietnam to, to do your course, research. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? <laughs> Again, you know, based on a bit of insight that they had a very, uh, very low numbers of you know, white goods in the home, so there was there was a need for the service, but yeah, uh, and that that was just fascinating, and and I think that was the point at which it sounds strange working in Vietnam and Mexico. That was the point at which I realised the potential in Liverpool, 
because selfishly, um, <laughs> I knew I'd be traveling a lot. So when right. they said to me, right, develop a concept, you've got free reign. I went to Google and I found a list of the architects who were closest to my house. Okay. And I thought, if I've got an architect who lives around the corner, then I've got a reason to come home because I can come home and meet the architect. And then I've got a reason to be at home for a week while we work on the design. So just complete selfishness of, right, if I use a London-based architect, I'll have to spend a load of time in London. If I, you, you know, if I use the one I know in France, I'll have to spend a load of time in France. I just want an excuse to come home. So I found a great architect based probably about two miles away from where I live. Right. And they just set up a couple of guys from Liverpool, um, John Moore's University. They'd set up, they were sort of working on a lot of hospitality projects, actually, and some residential stuff. Um, had a little office in the Baltic Triangle area of Liverpool and basically just went in blind and said to them, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. Do you fancy designing some laundromats? By the way, they're in Vietnam. And fair play to these guys. They went, well, that's weird. But yeah, sure. Why not? You know, <laughs> bored, yeah. So I started to do a bit of work with them. They introduced me to a copywriter who was based, you know, in the office next door to them. And, and I started to understand this little community really close to where I lived. And that particular area of Liverpool, the Baltic uh, Triangle area, has changed dramatically over the last five years. Right. A couple of guys who run um, a scheme called Independent Liverpool, which is basically a discount scheme for independence in the city. They had opened up a street food market in a, a sort of derelict factory building in the Baltic Triangle and called it the Baltic Market. And that was just sort of in its early stages of, you know, new street food concepts, people who didn't have bricks and mortar going in there, you know, turning over every three months. And, and just it, it just opened my eyes to this city that, although I've lived in Liverpool for as long as I can, you know, 25 years, mm. I didn't quite understand what was going on because I was never here. Right, and, yeah. and I think, you know, that decision I made to kind of go local with the architect and the copywriter and, and this particular area where they were based, I really started to see what was, was happening in, you know, in my own neighbourhood. And at the time, looking at it and thinking, I could really help you here. You know, this is, this is the kind of thing that I can really add value to. So, mm. you know, it was, it was funny, but it took a job in Vietnam to get me to, to connect to people in Liverpool. And, uh, that's, that's nuts, isn't it? it, is, isn't it? <laughs> so, you think about uh, uh, the, the concept of, of all of that, especially, yeah. and, and I think it's, it's true of a lot of people as well who commute to a different place to work. Yeah. You know, I I live uh, up by Stansted Airport, but my main marketplace has always been in London. Yeah. I haven't really done that much locally until I, I joined my local roundtable mm. and we started doing all this community stuff. And you just don't really know what's on your doorstep yeah. until you, you, you go look. Yeah. I think I've got clients now pretty much in a five mile radius of where I live. Right. Um, and that's conscious for me. It's it's. You know, Liverpool has such potential, but I'd, I'd never, I'd gone out at weekends, I'd gone to restaurants and bars, I'd never really noticed what was happening on my doorstep until I got involved with people who were working, you know, in the city. So, yeah, yeah we, we finished building these these stores in Vietnam and Mexico, and, um, you know, my contract ended with, with that particular employer. And, and I think that that was where the spark came from for Spaghetti, which was, okay, 
we've, we've got this funnel now. We've got these markets opening up and we've got people who are coming in with amazing food concepts. They're going into these street food markets. They're making a load of money in a short period of time. Where do they go next? How do we get them into their first site? How do we get them, you know, out mm. of a street food trailer and into bricks and mortar? Yeah. And, and that was where I saw spaghetti originally really being able to add value. So launched it in 2018 and ran a series of training courses because, you know, again, conscious of the fact that, that at that level, these guys couldn't necessarily afford traditional consultancy fees. Yeah. A lot of them, and, you know, still today, are not aware of what goes into actually opening a premises. And, you know, I think you can be the best chef in the world, but, you know, nobody tells you your responsibilities under CDM regs when you're building a restaurant. You know, it's it's yeah. a whole different skill set. So, you know, how do we get them to to understand to a, a reasonable level what their obligations are for planning and building regulations whilst at the same time nurturing the creative side of the business and not taking the fun parts away of, you know, launching your brand out into the big wide world. So, yeah, I, I developed a series of training courses um, and ran them as sort of group courses uh, and that sort of picked up and that was quite nice. That's actually quite a clever source of potential future business in itself though mm. if these guys can't pay your consultancy fee yeah. right now but maybe at some point if they took value from your course yeah and they're and they start to grow but they don't know if they're doing everything that they should be doing yeah. then i assume they come back to you yeah and, and that was the idea behind it as well was you know the, the lower value ticket price of the course that gave them an introduction and and in some cases you know even a few of them were like this sounds like really hard work I'm not sure I want to do this but it's that realistic you know struggle that goes into building something that you have to really really want yeah and giving them a realistic picture of of what you know pre-covid anyway what running a restaurant entailed and in some cases I, I think you know it was maybe the first person to say to them you've got a fantastic idea but have you considered that maybe this this or this might be better so Mm. yeah it was it it was really interesting but you know I was still really struggling to connect to businesses in the local area and I had relied for years on LinkedIn that was my social media platform you know and and I used I didn't use it effectively but I used it you know being being at the corporate end of things I used it as a kind of contact list of people so if I needed uh, I don't know, a good property lawyer in Vietnam, LinkedIn was my go-to place. If I needed to find good fit-out contractors in Mexico, I'd ask. You know, somebody would have the answer for me. Yeah. But when it comes to developing your own business, you know, and particularly with the range of contacts that I had and the geography of the contacts I had, I didn't have anybody actually at a local level in Liverpool. And you quickly realise, you know, food startups, small independent restaurants, they're not on LinkedIn. You know, they're, they're, that's yeah. not their platform. That's not where they are. Uh, if you're making, you know, jam in, in your front room, LinkedIn is not where you are. No, you've got a Facebook page, right? Or an Instagram Facebook page. or Instagram. And, and I started Liverpool Food Network originally as Liverpool Food Trends, as an Instagram page, purely with the aim of getting new products or new openings or new restaurants out there onto a platform right and and that's where liverpool food network sort of came from was the idea of just 
opening up an Instagram page to talk about really exciting things I'd found. So I'd go off to makers markets or vegan markets or, you know, anywhere I could go and meet a load of people who were making anything from sort of, you know, donuts and cakes through to really niche stuff like vegan butters and spreads and, and sort of have conversations with them and just say, you know, what is it you're doing? Why are you doing it? You know, where did the inspiration come from? What do you want to do with it in the long term? And for every, you know, nine of them who said, oh, it's just a hobby, one of them would say, I've got a business plan and I'm going to do this. So that became a vehicle to actually just get me through the door to talk to people. And it was interesting as it grew. It's not a huge page. I think it's about 4,000 followers on Instagram. I started to get people contacting me. It's exactly 3,900. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, well done. There you are. <laughs> um, I, I'm well researched. <laughs> I mean, it's not in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big following, but it is very local. And, you know, if somebody opens a bar or a restaurant, I'll quite often get a, a message saying, Do you want to come and, and, and try our bar? Yeah. Now, for me, that's lovely. And, and, you know, this idea of being a food blogger is really interesting, but it's opened doors for me, quite literally, that I couldn't have gotten through as a consultant. Mm. Right. And that's been my biggest vehicle to contact people and to to network people since I started. And, you know, I think Liverpool Food Network now exists outside of Instagram. It's a, a group of small startup businesses who actually interact with each other. That's the biggest benefit I've taken from it is, you know, if you're making jam in your living room or you're making kombucha in your garage, you both need to get labels you're both going to need some kind of you know jars or bottles there is a, a piece there that I'm not an expert in but they are in their own little ways so if we have a yeah. new business that starts in the city quite often we'll bring them into Liverpool Food Network and we'll draw on the resource and the knowledge of the people who've been through that journey you know 12 or 18 months previously and it just helps them speed up that process and it's 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 such an interesting little ecosystem in terms of how they support each other and you know watching one business support another small business is just you know so valuable and and nine times out of ten they're things I don't even have the answers for but I know somebody in that little group will yeah and that's been you know a really interesting and fun thing to get involved with and you know Liverpool Food Network was was just originally an Instagram page but the amount of context I had from small businesses quite quickly I realized there was an advantage to making it a face-to-face network and you know again lockdown has hampered any kind of face-to-face network into the last yeah. year we did run three face-to-face Liverpool food network events and we had small restaurants we had chefs we had local producers of products all talking to each other and you know remember the first time a coffee shop bought um, some drinks off a local producer and I just thought this is this is it this is what we need to do you know we just need to really nurture that local ecosystem and instead of going to coca-cola and buying from them you know buy from John who's making this in his garage and and it was it was just lovely to start to see that that as I say five mile radius but that local um, supply chain start to connect yeah. with each other and that's really that that's a, a big thing now as well, right? I mean, Ooh. if you're if you're a, a, a new restaurant and you're sourcing a jam, and I'm just yeah. using that as a very basic example, but you know, and somebody around the corner makes wonderfully local jam, mm. then why wouldn't you give that a go yeah. as opposed to uh, you know a, a a bigger brand that may exist soullessly somewhere else? 
And, you know, the honest answer is because most of the time you don't know about it. Yeah. And, and yeah. this is what I quite quickly realized is I've got fantastic little businesses dotted around here. Nobody knows they exist. You know, we've got a jam maker down the road and they actually make jam from vegetables that they have in a communal garden that is a social enterprise project. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and you think it's, it's three miles outside the city centre. What they're doing is incredible, but people don't know they exist. And, and that piece around storytelling and, and getting the background to a product for me is, is still what I try and do whenever I, you know, I post a blog or I post something out there. For me, quite often, it's as much about that person and their journey as it is about the product. And yeah. that's the piece where I think, you know, th- this is me coming at this as a member of the Chartered Institute of Builders, <laughs> who, now, who now is desperate to tell the story of a woman who makes jam. Yeah. You know, it's, it's gone. When we talk about Pivot, I think, you know, the last two years for me has been pretty much just about going, right, okay. You can be good at something, but you can be passionate about something else. And that's that's still okay. Yeah. You, you don't have to to always go back to this thing that you're supposed to be doing. And and that came really to to great use during lockdown because you know, from that first sort of February, March last year when things just did not look great for hospitality at all. I actually had a couple of projects um online at that point, people looking for premises to fit out. We'd gone, we'd viewed the premises, we'd started the process, everything mm. stopped. Yeah. Because who's going to open the restaurant in the middle of a pandemic, a lockdown, so much uncertainty, nobody wanted to take on the additional rent, nobody wanted the staff costs. So at that point, I thought, right, okay, what else can I do? Well, I can tell stories, I can I can talk about people's products. And I've sort of somehow found myself in the last 12, 18 months doing a lot more around brand communication, social media. I write content and produce content for a number of different people attached to hospitality. So some interior designers who work on restaurants in the city, a fantastic compliance company who um, deals with sort of um, food safety, um, fire safety, all those boring bits of hospitality that nobody wants to talk about, you know, (laughs) getting great content and, and, you know, telling their clients' stories, actually. So, you know, what, how did this restaurant come about or how did this concept start? And, and that piece of digging into behind the business and really just understanding the personality behind it and linking customers to something because they share the same values has, has been really what I've focused on for the last 12 months. And it couldn't be further away from construction. To the right, point when, when yeah. somebody actually rang me up a few weeks ago and went, I'm going to build a bar. I was like, oh, oh, right, oh, okay. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 I could do that as well, you know. Actually, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm all right at that. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been really interesting. And, and there's just, for me, you know, there's there's so much value in, in you know, I watch, I watch got, Instagram's a bit of a strange place now. I think LinkedIn is as well. I think this influencer, you know, You'll know what I mean, but all of these engagement pods and yeah. you know the people who get up at six in the morning to comment on other people's LinkedIn posts, like are there people who do that? Yes, there's actual groups of people who get together and you get up at six o'clock in the morning because the algorithm, who knows, you know, and you have to comment on somebody else's post before half six in the morning to get it higher up the rankings. And you know when you see those posts and there's a load of really useless comments underneath it, and you think, what the hell's gone on here? Yeah, that's what's gone on. oh yeah that's a thing but you have to get up at six in the morning and i'm more likely to still be up at one in the morning than six in the morning you know i'm the same same. 
I'm uh, definitely, my brain doesn't really seem to kick in creatively until about five or six o'clock at night. And then I go nuts. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you've got to be a special type of person to get involved in, in that and really kind of be very disciplined. And that's not me. But I also think it, it really kind of reduces the value of, of the content that we're seeing to the point where people yeah. are just over it. I think people are over influencers. They're over fake, you know, it's it, a lot of, it just doesn't sound genuine what I'm seeing no, and what no. I'm reading in a lot of places. And I think, you know, that's even more of an opportunity to go out there and start telling real stories. And, I think and, this is what happens though, isn't it? Yeah. Where you're in the cycle of something new and shiny is that, people jump on the bandwagon and, and create this fake space and after a while because they're not and you know they're not passionate about it and they're not doing yeah. doing it from the heart they fall away and the real stuff starts coming yeah. through yeah. Uh, i remember seeing once on uh, i think it was the russell howard hour yeah they had a, a a video of kim kardashian explaining how to take the perfect photo for instagram and the one thing that I always remember uh, about this clip was she said, so then when you've got the perfect position, I'm not going to, not going to do an impression. And um, uh, then, you, Come on. <laughs> then, I, then I take, um, I don't know, you know, about two to 300 photos. Yeah. And you think, sorry, yeah. you're spending your life doing that. Yeah. And not only that, then, then she's leading people into doing that as well who are just wasting their life yeah. doing something that's uh is uh, ultimately it's not sustainable yeah and 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 the the end product i mean that that's the other you know like particularly around you know fashion and beauty influencers the amount of photo editing and things like that that go on you just think you know it's just unrealistic and that yeah that will that will burst and, and i say that as somebody who's somehow found themselves in the position of food blogger on instagram but you know i, I know yeah. that I also am very mindful that, you know, the businesses I'm dealing with, I, I never take payment for what I do. You know, somebody will send me product. I'll do a full photo shoot, send them a full deck of photos back that they can then use on their website or their, you know, their social. I'm very conscious that I have a responsibility to a small business to give them value mm. as well as show their product. And, you know, that that's not necessarily the ethos of a lot of people who are doing this, but yeah. The biggest, the biggest sort of thing I hope to bring out of this is actually, I think the next round of influencers will be business to business. I think you'll get one business. At Burger King, this prime example. Have you seen Burger King's social media at the moment? Uh, I can't say that I have, actually. Burger King have given over their Instagram during lockdown to small businesses. And every day they are putting up a picture of, you know, Sure, you can get a Whopper anytime, but why don't you buy this fish sandwich from Sam's Fish and Chips in Portsmouth? Or why don't you order this kebab from, you know, Jim's Kebab in in Darlington? And every single day they're putting a local independent business onto the Burger King main page with however many followers they have and encouraging their customers to buy from independents. And I just think that that's, you know, that's such a, a great idea in terms yeah. of getting visibility for those businesses, but also, you know, for, for a business to be recognized by another business in the same industry as doing a good job, for me, is much more powerful than an individual coming along and telling me that they're doing a good job. Yeah, true. Yeah, You know, I think, you know, with Food Network, I really try and encourage that. And, and it's been nice, you know, I've got a, a guy who does, he's a private chef, and at the moment he's doing at-home boxes. 
And when he does his at-home boxes, he partners with some of the independent suppliers from Food Network to do a particular dish. So it might be a kombucha-infused miso, or I think this week he's doing a particular um, kimchi dish with a kimchi from a local supplier. And seeing businesses endorsing other businesses, I think, is is possibly where the influencer trend is going to go in in the next few years because I'm seeing that that sort of businesses willing to work with other businesses and willing to support other businesses is incredibly powerful at the moment and more powerful for me than just seeing an individual say, I had this pizza and it was great. You know, it's... it's, I've definitely seen this this, this more desire for collaboration yeah. now and you know it's just a i suppose a very basic thing that we are definitely stronger together and that's a, yeah. cl- a cliched soundbite but it's it's true you know we but can it, all help each other uh, move so forward important. and i think locally you know you mentioned earlier about my involvement with the bread and butter the bread and butter is a network i've set up with two other local businesses in liverpool city center one is the the compliance business i mentioned earlier foursquare the yeah. owner of foursquare liam jones and um actually the owner of Ubiquity PR, Joel Jellen, we got together and it's really interesting. Coming from the construction and property world, I could go to a different networking event any night of the week. Before COVID, there were that many networks I could join to talk about any aspect of real estate development, investment, property, blah, 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 landlords, Institute of Architects, you go anywhere you want. You know, there's always something happening when that industry comes together and has a chat. Naively, when I started the consultancy, I assumed the same thing existed in hospitality and it didn't. You know, there is no real sort of network where people who own restaurants all get together and talk about owning restaurants because they're competitors in their eyes. But they also could get huge value out of it. So we started the bread and butter as a way to actually try and bring independent businesses together and our, our idea behind that was that we would bring them together so they could chat, but we would also offer them something uh, in terms of something, something that would interest them and perhaps add value to their business. So, for example, we had um, a guy come along and talk about the, um, was the Carbon Trust, this idea where you can add a pound to your bill and they plant trees and, you know, it's doing a yeah. lot of good and, and how that could be involved, how that could could you know benefit their business from a a sort of doing 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 more good way um and then we also had we actually had an event lined up just before the first lockdown where we were bringing a load of hr specialists in to talk about you know how to reduce that 90-day churn and and how can you onboard people to your business so as well as bringing these businesses together we were trying to add a little bit of value on top of that and connect them up to people who could help them if that was what their need was at that time. So, you know, that was something that, again, as soon as we're permitted, we're going to start those events again. But I think the the really positive thing that's come out of all of the events of the last 12 months is that people have started to talk to each other. And there is now, for example, a WhatsApp group of about 40 or 50 different businesses in Liverpool who talk to each other on a daily basis. Now, that was unthinkable 12 months ago. They wouldn't have even talked to each other if they passed each other in the street. You had your little groups and your cliques, but, you know, they they didn't all want to talk to each other or, you know, all act in the same way Mm. towards one one goal and one cause. And I think lockdown has done anything. It's actually united towards the same goals. 
Um, and I think a lot of, of good relationships will be formed off the back of that, that we'll actually see more partnership coming out the other end of this. And Totally, yeah. And I hope that that's a trend that continues. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Well, I, what's what's the next year got in store for you, if, if we're allowed to crack on? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like to be opening a couple of uh, a couple of restaurants and bars in the next twelve months with people. I think you know that would be great. Um, mm. At the moment, as I say, a lot of my um, my business has turned into to sort of helping people communicate to their customers online. So, sort of you know the social media, blogging, content creation. I've actually got somebody working with me at the moment to produce that. I, I think really it's it's seeing where we go. You know that the nice thing about having a small business and and being a business owner is this this buzzword we love pivot you know can't say yeah. it without thinking about that scene from do we love it do we really love it <laughs> the whole industry loves pivot yeah. um you know you can you, you can sort of say well okay i was doing that but now i see a need for this and that particular customer needs me to do this and let's see if there's something more in that and you know i guess you know i i preach on and on about your customer comes first but I guess that's the ethos of my business as well you know what does my customer need what do they need mm-hmm. me to do can I do it let's do it and and you know it, that could be anything from helping them I was was actually in a meeting earlier this week talking to some some architects and some builders on a site about how to you know plug into various drainage points in a, a building and then go from there into you know a, a discussion with somebody about how to effectively market their their product in a delivery sense online so you know it's for me it's it's about having those people in my my work bubble if you like who who I really think have got a great idea I really want to see them to succeed and and understanding how I can add value to that and how you know I can can give them what they need in order to grow yeah so I don't know let's see it could be yeah. could be we massively focus on online and delivery platforms or it could be that we're allowed to get back out there and actually start opening up some bricks and mortar premises yeah so well yeah I, I suppose remaining flexible to whatever comes along yeah. but it sounds like what whatever that you're kind of doing what you deeply care about and that's yeah. um that's you know that's just a wonderful place to start from um, it because is. it means that you'll always your brain will always be thinking about uh, okay well that's not going to work under the current circumstance but what else can we do yeah. and that's where great innovation comes from actually that's my deep point for the day i'm seeing a lot of that you know my 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 sort of again the small businesses you know if you're a big business out there at the moment have a look at what these guys are doing at sort of you know the the old cottage industry level but the people who are making in their own homes or in really small premises Mm. and and they're definitely leading the way for me the independents are really leading the way on on innovation and forward thinking and you know, they haven't got huge budgets. In fact, in most cases, they've got no budgets. But yeah. they're just doing what feels right and what their customer wants. And, you know, I've seen some fantastic businesses really grow through the last six to 12 months who yeah. perhaps might not have taken that path or might not have taken that risk. But that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, in amongst all of the the crapness that comes with what mm-hmm. what we've got at the moment comes opportunity as well. And, and I think a lot of times people are on a path and they've gotten to that path because they've just been super busy all the time and that's just what's kind of landed as opposed to being able to take a moment and really think about the thing that's true to them and, and their kind of ultimate goal of, of why they did it in the first place. And a, a, a lot of amazing stuff has come out of this 
that we wouldn't have necessarily had the opportunity to to explore had had we just carried on as we were yeah i totally agree i think you know that's the biggest positive i've taken out of this and yeah it's it's terrible being locked up in your own home and not being able to go out and you know see the people you love and everything else but at least you've got the the bin theory though I've got the wrong... the bin fairy. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a bin fairy. Well, I mean, I must have a bin fairy. I've just never seen him. Maybe yeah. my bin fairy comes in the middle of the night. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> um, have you got you got any uh, any funny stories you could share with us? <laughs> got a, got a few about. Um, I shouldn't say this actually, but I, I will. Um, Excellent. <laughs> So, so when we were, were talking earlier about, you know, opening new markets for Costa and we, um, we opened up uh, Costa Morocco and there are some, or there were at the time, some quite strict uh, rules as to what you could import into Morocco in terms of, of food products, not necessarily around the product itself, but around the labelling of the product. And we were uh, we were launching a store, and we um, we just needed to sort of get it open and get it off the ground. And there was one very key ingredient that we were really struggling to to export and and get through border control at Morocco, and right. and that was vanilla powder, which is the powder that goes into their sort of cold drinks and that kind of thing. So um, myself and uh, one of the BDMs at the time <laughs> came up with with the idea that we'd just stick 20 kilos of this vanilla powder in its um, pre-packaged foil bags into a suitcase and just take it with us, you know, get mm-hmm. them off the ground. You, you think these big businesses are all about big strategy, but to be honest, with franchisees, quite often you still find yourself just doing what you have to do to get a store open. Right, right. And in our case, that was trying to take 20 kilos of vanilla powder in a suitcase through Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think we've made it 20 metres away from the check-in desk before we were tannoyed back back to check-in to explain why the x-ray had shown 20 kilos of white powder in foil packages inside of the suitcase that we just checked (laughs) so yeah i mean you know we got it there eventually we we got the store open but uh yeah it did did raise some eyebrows at at the airport have a smell of it have a smell of it honestly I actually had my own my own luggage um, investigated by uh, the American authorities because I was bringing back. Um, so whenever I used to go on my travels internationally, I would always go to a supermarket, and that was the one thing I had to do. It didn't matter what I was there for. I wanted to see the local supermarket and buy, you know, something like stock cubes in Vietnam or you know, and yeah, I got yeah. to Mexico, and there's this product in Mexico that is a brown um, sugar. It's like a cane sugar and it comes in like a compacted cone and you take it home, you break chunks off it and you use it in various recipes, like a caramelized sugar. So I've got two cones of this sugar from a supermarket in like a little plastic veggie bag, you know, like you do. Yeah. Not taking anything of it. Stuck it in the, the top of the suitcase. And yeah, it turns out American customs did not like that at all. Right. And I got my case back with a lovely little note on the top of it saying uh, we have investigated the entire contents of your case and we have removed this you know, questionable product that we believe to be uh, something you shouldn't have. And I thought, Narcotic. wonder what they thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, I thought, oh, you know, I was, I was gutted. I thought I'm going to do something with that this weekend and I never got the opportunity. So, yeah. Uh... But not only that, the, um, you know, if you're going to stash something 
interesting to to yeah. take back with you. You're not going to put it in something that well just looks <laughs> weird when it comes goes through the scanner or whatever, right? Two cone shaped things. You're going yeah. to put it in something. Two cones of compacted brown crystals. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, absolutely. Not that I'm the uh, the voice of uh, how to take stuff through customs. Um, I'll definitely. Uh, <laughs> Definitely going to park that one right there. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, the things you do. You know. Yeah, I, I remember getting uh, stopped in as I came into Australia once, yeah. uh, and I had football boots, and this was just after uh, foot and mouth. Oh no! And um, they literally the football boots were right at the bottom of the case, and this was the the full luggage case. You had to scan your your luggage as you came into the country, and they ripped out all of the contents of my case just to get to these. What were brand new football boots? Had not even, yeah. had not even kicked a ball in anger with them, and uh, and then they said, "Yeah, that's fine." And then I had to repack my case in front of everyone. That was lovely. I got walnut whips confiscated once in Australia because they had walnuts on them. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, have you ever watched um, board, is it Border Control? I've seen the odds. There's a program on Channel Five that is is just around the Australian customs team confiscating mostly food products off people who arrive in Australia. Yeah. And it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this woman brought in a banana from Dubai and she's basically like up for a $3,000 fine and a year in prison, you know? It's yeah. like, they're so extreme. But um, I mean, I understand why, but it, it's just it's such a good programme to watch. and just like, when, I, um, when I worked on, on cruise ships and yeah. I was responsible for, for food safety on board and that meant liaison with, uh, with all public health authorities when they came on. And when we were in, in Australia, the, the public health authorities came on with their beagles. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that was the first time I, I have a beagle now. So it was the first time that I remember seeing a beagle going, oh, that, that's the dog so for you me. you have a beagle because they're the security dog of the Australians. Yeah, <laughs> but listen to, to the reasons why. And they, uh, they were basically they came on to ensure that no passengers or crew were taking any food off with them. Right. And uh, And I said, so why these dogs? And he said, well... They're hounds. They're scent hounds, so their their nose is constantly on the go, and they've got the one of the best noses in the dog world. So they'll they'll sniff out food uh, at any point in time because they're also ravenous. Yeah. They will just they're one of these dogs that will just eat and eat and eat without stopping. So they're always looking for food. Yeah. Um, so and just at that moment, one of the dogs' nose hit the air and went up to a, a little old lady who had a banana in her oh, bag. No. Yeah, and uh, and it was an uh, they weren't like issuing fines or anything like that, but it, it was a case of oh, we'll just have that, Adam. And then the other reason he said that they use bagels, he says, is just look at them; they're cute <laughs> as hell. You know, they're they're not an imposing thing to to come up to and sniff your bag. You know, it's not like a big Doberman or a an Alsatian, yeah, uh, or something like that. And uh, he had a point. The least threatening dog, I suppose, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, lady getting a banana confiscated thinking she was getting you know to pet a nice little beagle and then next thing you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. pinned to the floor yeah <laughs> <laughs> um oh dear me. right wonderful well at a um if people want to get a hold of you to learn a little bit more about you and what you do what's what's the best method hey, for I'm, that? I'm everywhere <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, um, Liverpool Food Network on Instagram or find me on LinkedIn. Have a look at the Spaghetti Group website, so www.spaghettigroup.com. Yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple ways to get hold of me. You won't struggle. 
I'm, yeah. I'm around everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always keen to talk to anybody who is excited about customer experience. That's my, my real sort of passion and, and, you know, communicating to customers about, you know, a business that's just really exciting for everyone. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Well, I think the one thing, well, there's a couple of things I really loved from from your journey. One is that you kind of demonstrate the point that there's no right or wrong time to come into hospitality. It, you know, the timing was right for you. And equally on that point is that, you know, it's not just all about front of house and cooking food. Look at all the other elements to hospitality that exist. Yeah. Um, and you're uh, you're a, another piece of that jigsaw. Yeah. That's no, it's. Hospitality industry for me is, having spent a long time in the construction industry, there are some parallels, but I just find the general enthusiasm and positivity of hospitality as an industry is is something that a lot of other industries could learn a lot from. Yeah. You know, I think anybody who's come through the hospitality industry, you know, as an employee as well, has got so much to offer. Yeah. Uh, And it's just a special breed of people. And and I love that. I love the energy and I love the enthusiasm. No, I couldn't agree more. Mm. Well, thank you very much for you. sharing your story with us today. It's been uh, it's been a blast, as I was hoping it would be. Um, and it's you're definitely the first conversation I've spoken about bins. So <laughs> that's another life goal ticked. I'm going to go and find out what happens to my bins now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah, Take care, Louise. You too. Bye-bye now. And there we have it. Another fabulous journey so far from Louise, also once again demonstrating that you can come into this amazing industry from any angle and at any time. Don't forget, we'll be back at 8pm next Wednesday with more stories from hospitality. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.